Okay, so uh, drop drop those connect cards in at the connect at the information desk at the back in the, in the basket. That'd be great. Um, we are starting a new a new year. We're also starting a new series, looking at um, looking at the sermon on, on the mount. And my my opening line is this. There is something sinister about a closed group. You know, the one that, turn, that turns their backs in the playground. The bosses in crowd. The club members only notice. Um, a, few de- a few decades ago in the UK, uh, it, was on, it, was on, it was common to see outside bed and breakfast uh, places. Irish and blacks not allowed. Just a few decades ago. And since then, we think that our we've kind of moved on to the higher planes of coexistence with our fellow human beings. But once again, these last, if there's anything over the last few months to kind of highlight what's going on in the, in the UK, it's this, that we still want to keep others out. Um, there's politicians that would love to have signs at the White Cliffs of Dover saying, not welcome. And uh, so we think we've moved on, but um, there's still people that want to keep others out. And I want to pose that the centre of a closed group is a bully. At the centre of this kind of exclusive, controlling person is, is this bully who wants to control his or her, her domain. And we've all experienced that. I don't know um, whether you've been bullied. I don't know whether you've experienced a bully or experienced someone who's tried to control you. Uh, or power. Maybe they've been trying to control you with their words or their actions or their deeds. They're basically saying you're not welcome. You're not invited. Do not come any closer. And uh, if you've been around church, you've probably, you may or may not have experienced that in cliques, in closed groups, that feeling like you don't, you're not part of that, that little group. But what's so astounding is the God of the Bible. Uh, just think about it, it's the all-powerful, all-knowing one who reveals himself uh, in the words of the Bible as, um, as the inviter, the welcomer. And um, one of the incredible risks that God has made is that he's, um, he's come, he's come to earth and he's having this invitation to come. Well, you come, you're invited. He's got this open-door policy that unlocks the way to freedom. And he did that by opening his arms on the cruel cross. And the great inviter, I, I, I was thinking about where in scripture does, does God talk about this invitation? To, about two and a half thousand years ago, in, uh, in the book of Isaiah, he, he writes this, Come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without any cost. And in Psalm 23, it says this, God, he prepares a table for you and I. And in John's Gospel, he opens up the first chapter of John's Gospel. He came to, to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. So right at the beginning of the book, right at the beginning of creation, God has this welcome. Come, come to me. And also at the end, 
when we think about eternity, that day when we're all going to be judged, we're all going to face, we're going to come toe-to-toe with Jesus. He says this in Revelation. He says, here I am, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they will be with me. That's in Revelation 3. And what I can gather, as I've just been sort of thinking about it this week, is that the Bible and God is this thread, this golden thread through this Bible. Imagine there's a golden thread in this Bible. It's just this long invitation to come. It's a long invitation to party. That's what I can read. And to come home. And just God saying, you're invited. You're always invited. And I don't know whether um, you've noticed this, that the kingdom of God versus the kind of where we live, it feels a bit upside down. The kingdom of God seems totally upside down to the kingdom of this world. And some of the teachings in here stand in direct contrast to the things that we face every day. And so as we start this new term, we're going to start, uh, we're going to be talking and speaking about the upside down kingdom. We're going to be talking about the, the Sermon on the Mount, but looking at the perspective of it, it's all upside down to what we're faced with every day. And uh, I've written it down here. So you're going to hear one of the greatest sermons you'll ever hear. You might be thinking, Steve, I've heard you preach. <laughs> I'm not sure you can make this bold statement. But we're going to be talking about the greatest sermon ever preached. The greatest sermon that one man has ever spoken about. A human being, the greatest sermon. And it's found in two places. In Matthew 5, 6 and 7, Jesus has this long discourse with uh, the people around him. It's also found a shorter delivery. So Jesus preached it twice. He preached it once, this longer version, but then he talks about it in Luke 6. And uh, what I really wanted to do is is just read the sermon, because it's the greatest sermon of all all time. It's the greatest greatest monologue that's ever been spoken, and it speaks to us. It's this upside down. Uh, But we're going to talk about the shorter one today. Uh, the The Sermon on the Mount is a classic place in the Bible to find a picture of what it means to live a Christian life. And it, I, I want to propose, it answers questions like, what exactly is new, 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 <laughs> newness of life? What does a resurrected life look like? What does it mean to follow Jesus? What kind of character, lifestyle, attitudes can a subject of the kingdom look like? Can a follower of Jesus be like? And so I really want want to encourage you to read this sermon. Uh, People are always looking to find, how can I be a better follower of Jesus? How can I be a disciple? Let me grab this book. Let me listen to this podcast. Let me, I want to be a disciple of Jesus. And there's more and more and more out there in terms of finding how to be a disciple. Can I just give you one tip? If you do anything... One of the, I heard uh, one of my friends who runs a church in Croydon, Croydon Vineyard, Tom, he said this, and I, I was just fascinated, it was so simple. He said, the best way for you to be a follower of Jesus, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, read the Bible every day. Just read the Bible every day. That's the best place to, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, 
read the Bible every day. And so, if you want to start anywhere, start with the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6 and 7. Just read that every day. Or if that's too much, just read the version in Luke 6. Read that every day. Read that every day. Um, so we're going to be looking at, I don't know how long this sermon's going to take. I reckon maybe to Christmas. Series. Series. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This, this particular sermon. This particular sermon's going to take uh, two months. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Rugs of all coffee. So shall we, shall we read it? Shall we read it? So if you want to open up your phones, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to turn to Luke 6. If you don't have a Bible, um, at the information desk, just grab one without compliment. And uh, they'll be there at the back. But otherwise, we're, we're going to look at Luke 6 this week, and over the next couple of months, we're going to look at uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Luke 6, verses. Um, uh, let's do. Let's do verse 20. He went down with them and stood at a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him, because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, and insult you, and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Verse 23. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that's how their ancestors treated the false prophets. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who ill-treat you. If someone slaps you on, if someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them. Turn, turn the other one also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if everyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. This is the word of God. It's absolutely true. And it's given to us in love. So Jesus, he delivered the Sermon on the Mount more than once. We have it here in Luke 6. What's interesting in both accounts, it, it's associated with a mountain. Matthew 5, it says that Jesus went up the mountain. In Luke uh, 16, verse 17, it says he came down. He came down from there. Uh, and Jesus, when he'd been on the mountainside teaching his disciples, why? I 
think about this. Why does, why does the, both accounts talk about the mountain? Uh, from, what, from what the kind of scholars and theologians can tell, Jesus preached the sermon on the, ma- on the mountains above and just north of the Sea of Galilee. And these mountains have the same function as the, the mountains have had for centuries before them. If you were a revolutionary or wanted to bring about change or a new kingdom or a new administration, you were always hunted. Uh, you would hide out in the mountains. So Jesus, he preached at the mountains where people would hide out. They were revolutionaries. Think about David. Just as the revolutions hide in the mountains, so Jesus Christ, he comes to the mountains. Because he's bringing about this revolution. He's bringing about this. It's a bit subversive. In the first verse of the sermon, he says this. Uh, I'm coming to bring this new administration. I'm coming to bring a new kingdom. A new kingdom to replace the old kingdom. Now, when you, when you begin to understand what he says about the kingdom, and we're hopefully going to be looking at that, you realise that every other revolutionary who ever lived, was, all they were doing was just making these sort of fine tunings, these small tweaks to the way things are done. So Jesus comes and he steps into a time where Pharisees and lawmakers and religious people take the commands of God and they would make these tweaks they would make these changes and he steps in and he says I'm bringing a new kingdom I'm bringing a new way of, way of living and uh, I want to propose these three things, he brings values he brings power and he brings a result because of what Jesus says here, he brings this new set of values every kingdom every uh, uh, way. So a football manager, they get appointed into a team and they say to the players, I know your, your previous manager, they did it this way, um, but that manager w- wasn't into conditioning, so I am going to know, I'm going to give you some new ways of conditioning, new values in here, new ways of training, new ways to implement uh, his plan. Uh, and then secondly, he brings this kind of uh, power to implement these set of values. The manager decides who's, who's going to play, who sits on the bench, what's the formation, how to implement these set of values, these sets of strategies, and how it's going to be played. And so thirdly, there's always a result. When the, when the values are implemented, when the power is, uh, is put into effect, there's always a result. And it's up to the team then to, to take on some of those changes to either win or win or lose. Let me give you an example. I'm trying to make it really practical. So, yesterday we were praying for people uh, on the streets of Bell. Before Jesus came, the way we would pray for people, we would pray intercessory prayers. So in Isaiah, uh, it says, um, Oh Lord, rend the heavens and come down. If it's your will that this person be healed, make it so. So before Jesus, that's how I would pray for people. But Jesus brought a new kingdom, a new administration, new power, new values. So the way we pray now is be healed. Be healed. In Jesus' name, be healed. If I pray for people, using the old intercessory 
prayer model, I won't get the same results as the, the command of Jesus for now. And so I've noticed when I when I first started praying for people, I would pray in the old old-fashioned way, the old kingdom way. And I'd say, Lord, is it your will to heal this person now? Uh, if it's your will, please do something. Um, almost like a roulette wheel. Is it your will this day? Will their lucky numbers come in? Are you in a good mood? Is it sort of a Wednesday afternoon? Do you like this kind of thing? Is it sunny? But now, if I pray that kind of way, I'm not going to get the same results as if I pray the way Jesus instructs his disciples. <coughs> and he just simply says, when you pray, heal. When there's an, there's an assumption that will go and heal the sick. And so when I pray now, I see, we see more results because we pray the way Jesus has instructed. Does that make sense? If that makes sense. Um, and so it's up to the players, think about the manager, it's up to the players to reach that potential. It's up to the players to do what, do what Jesus says. Okay, um, so when I think about Jesus' plan, his plans are to bring heaven to earth. Uh, we, we sang that, sang that earlier, our Father, like a version of the Lord's Prayer. And it's found in Matthew, Matthew 7, the version of the Lord's Prayer. And God's plan is to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth now. You see, in heaven there's no sickness, there's no sin, there's no shame, there's no fear, um, there's no insecurities, there's no tears. And uh, Jesus, the Son of God, became a human being. And I love what the message in the version of the Bible, the translation of the Bible, says that the Word, Jesus, became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. I really love that. He moved in. He moved into the neighborhood. That Jesus, the God-man, became a human being. And no other religion can make the claims or the promises like Christianity. Jesus became like us. He faced the same stuff that we face. He faced the same sin, uh, uh, temptations to sin. Uh, we talk about man alive tomorrow. Jesus faced the issues that we as guys face now. He faced those things and he came up trumped. He came out clean. And he lived the life that we could live. And he set a model for us to live, live, a, live a good life. But not only that, it's that God has sent his Holy Spirit. Uh, if you think about Holy Spirit, it's like Jesus without skin. The Holy Spirit's like within us, but it's like Jesus, but without skin. It's kind of living and breathing inside of us. And I think it's stunning. I think it's amazing what God's done for us. And our task as kingdom people is to invite others to experience the same thing that we, we can experience. But the upside down of the kingdom means that God... And this is sort of the nub, you think about the centre of the, the talk, this is the nub. That the, that the upside down of the kingdom means that God doesn't give the task to the most qualified, or the most gifted, or the most educated, the good looking, the extroverts among us, the inspirational communicators. I, I want to propose this, that God gives his redemptive plan to two types of people. Uh, he gives it to the poor and the poor in spirit. 
I was thinking, what's your, as, a, as the greatest sermon ever, what's your opening line? What's the opening line to the greatest sermon ever? And he says this, blessed are the poor. I, I spend most of my time, think about prepping a sermon, I spend a lot of my time thinking, what's my opening line? What's my, what's my opening line? And uh, my opening line was, there's something sinister about a closed group. Quite, quite an important thing to start with. Jesus' opening line was, blessed are the poor. In, verse, in, in Luke 6, he says, blessed are the poor. When he delivers the same sermon in Matthew 5, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Two types of people that I, I believe and I want to propose that God gives his redemptive plan to. Uh, and so I was, asking, I was thinking about this, and lots of theologians and cleverer people than me have wrestled with this question. Is it the poor, or is it the poor in spirit? Is it those that are materially poor, or those that are spiritually poor? And uh, I was thinking, what would Jesus say? And uh, so it's on Friday, I started thinking about some of these sort of paradoxes, some of these conundrums. So Jesus, have you come for the poor, or the poor in spirit? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly who I'll come for. Uh, I'll think about some more questions. It's been my mind works. Jesus, how do I get eternal life? Is it through grace or through works? Yeah. He replies, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly what it is. Jesus, do you draw, to, draw near to me first? Or should I draw near to you first? Yeah, yeah, do that. Yeah, that's exactly You've got the right theology there. Here's another one. Here's another sort of leap for us. Jesus, according to the scriptures, you've forgiven me for everything I've done wrong in the past, everything I've done wrong today, and everything I've ever done wrong, will ever do wrong. About 2,000 years ago, what you did on the cross has meant that you've forgiven me for everything. Or, do I still need to ask for forgiveness every time I sin? Yeah. Yeah, do that. That's exactly right. Okay, can I take some more leaps? Some more sort of challenging questions. Jesus, do I have the Holy Spirit in me and everything I need now is in me? According to Jesus, I've got everything I need now. Or do I need to pray for more? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's these paradoxes. Okay. This one, uh, this one I was nervous about saying, but I'm going to say it. Jesus, when I ask people, can I pray for you now? Seven words that can change someone's life. Life, life. Can I pray for you now? Right now? Right now, <laughs> seven words. Seven words. Can I pray for you right now, Jesus? I'm making some assumptions. When I when I ask pre people, can I pray for you right now? Is it you in me that releases power, or when I pray, is it my words that release power for healing? 
Yeah. Remember, we're talking about upside down. There's a new, there's a new kingdom. There's a new way of thinking. It's Christ in us. And Jesus says, when you pray, heal them. That's sort of challenge anyway. That challenged me. Um, so uh, Monday, job club, we had a man, Muslim man, he had back problems, and uh, so we just just the Karen, that chair is really awesome, Karen. Um, and uh, so we, I said, you know, would you like some prayer for your back? Yeah, yeah, I really would. Um, I'm a, he said I'm a Muslim. I thought that's that's great. Are you, sh- are you sure you want me to pray? Yeah, please pray for me. And I kept repeating, so I, I, I love Jesus, I follow Jesus. <laughs> Is that okay? Yeah, please pray for me. And he loved the prayer. His back was healed. Yeah. But he loved just, he was like, that's, a, that's really good. That's really nice. It's like, yeah, it's really nice. Viv was then praying for another, another Muslim lady, another Muslim lady. And she was saying, my boyfriend, Christian. And Viv was talking to her. Is he like what kind of Christian? Well, he doesn't really go to church, and and they prayed for her, and she's like, that feels really nice. That feels it's peace. It's the peace of Jesus. And uh, so she said, I need to go and tell my boyfriend to be a better Christian. <laughs> I need to help him as a Muslim woman. I need to help my Christian boyfriend to be a to be a Christian. Right? Do that. That's so we're called as Christians, follow Jesus, we're called to just think. We're called to think. We're called to like think about some of these some of these things. Um, if I hear you praying intercessory prayers, I'll say, don't do that. Do this way, pray this way. Uh, for sickness, for sickness. Uh, I want to propose that the gospel will grab middle class people. And the gospel will grab middle class people and turn their hearts towards the poor. Um, where, because if you think about the poor, and for some people, they, some, some people are poor, I, we're praying that they will be turn their hearts towards Christians as well. Uh, I believe that the poor are those who, who know their, their stuff. So I used to work in prisons, and in prisons, Everyone knew about sin. Everyone knows how poor they are in spirit. Everyone knows there's a, like a hierarchy of sin. Well, this is this is really bad, but this is this. But they still sin, and they know that they're sinners. So, in prisons, it you know you talk about poor in spirit. In prisons, it's a, it's an amazing place to for, for guys and girls to receive Jesus because they get grace. They get this free gift of grace. They get that they're sinners. And they have to be saved by grace. Um, but the gospel, and this is what I want to sort of leave you with to, uh, this morning. The gospel will take us as Christians and turn our hearts towards the poor. Um, and Viv and I, we thought about the kind of church that we felt Jesus wanted to build. And we will always be invitational. Anyone, anyone's welcome. Come and join us as we follow Jesus trying to be a disciple. Um, what's the best way to be a disciple? Oh, um, and we're just taking people on this adventure.
But one of our values, uh, which we feel from Jesus, is to be a compassionate church, with a particular emphasis on the poor. Um, and as long as you stay around, around us, we will always have this kind of value uh, for the poor. I don't know whether you know about this. A third of children in our borough are below the poverty line. Third. I don't know what that does to you. Over 20,000 children are below the poverty line. In our neighbourhood, Jesus moves in. In our neighbourhood, a third fill of that. In some of the other boroughs around the city, it's almost, it rises up to about half. Nearly half the children in our borough are, um, are below the poverty line. Uh, it does something to me. If we're to be a compassionate church, how, do, how does that how does that work? What you read as you read the Bible is that it, it, it talks about, in the Bible, it speaks of God's heart for the poor. It's constant, almost in every page. You turn every page, and there's an emphasis of God towards the poor. There are over 2,000 verses on the poor, and God's heart on the poor. My personal view uh, is that us in the room who call ourselves Christians, if we don't speak out against poverty or injustice, I, I want to say we lose our credibility. Because God's emphasis is on the poor. His opening line is blessed by the poor. Throughout scripture, you look at every page, it's about, about the poor. And I don't think it's an accident. Uh, that's a lot of airtime to give to a particular people group. The poor, poor in spirit. Uh, and my personal view, again, I'm just saying, it's like therapy for me. Um, my personal view is that we want to shake off some of our insecurities, our introspection, our self-sabotage in our minds. The best thing that we can do, uh, one of the things we can do is join a gym or get a personal trainer. Uh, but I want to propose that the best way is to get amongst the poor. Um, a few years ago, a friend of ours in our, in our small group, he rang me up on Saturday afternoon. He said, Steve, I'm, um, I'm about to commit suicide. Uh, I'm going up to London, one of the bridges in London, to commit suicide. Part of me thought that you probably won't, commit, you won't die. You'd just get some kind of poisoning from the Thames. But... Um, but he was, he was adamant, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and commit suicide. And I want to meet you. I want to meet you before I do the deed. Oh, okay. Uh, so I said to him, well, I'm going to be on Bedford Hill opposite Starbucks. So come, come along there. And it happened to be a heel on the street. So. so he came along. And I said, before you commit suicide, just help, us, help me pray for some people here. And it happened to be that God brought people who were depressed, people who were suffering, people who were mentally ill, people that needed a job. And so I just got him to join, join me and pray. And at the end, he was like, oh, it's not just me that's going through that. Uh, I spoke to him a few weeks ago, and he's like this, uh, nothing to do with me, but he's just this radical person, he goes and prays for homeless people, he he's, uh, just watches YouTube, YouTube clips of evangelists, and he's, he's suddenly got this fire inside of him, and, um, 
And I want to propose, get amongst the poor. If you've never done that, get amongst the poor. Uh, over this next, this next year, we want to get amongst the poor even more and almost push us, teach on it, get some perspective of God's heart after the poor here. Um, So what I want you to do is just in groups of sort of fives and five and six, just pray. Just pray for. Uh, I, I was really struck by that fact in, in our borough, just a third of the children. Uh, I'd like us to pray for children in our in our borough, or pray for teachers in our borough who work, and pray for social workers in our borough. Um, uh, so yeah, just do that. Get into fives and sixes. This is going to get uncomfortable. Don't, don't spend too long introducing yourself. But just let's just begin praying, praying for the poor, praying for our children. Um, and we're going to do that just for a few minutes.